Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Richo podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday, the 15th of October, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Sean Kine has become the government chief whip. His predecessor, Joe McHugh, has been promoted to become the Minister for Education. Sean Canney has been made a junior minister. And Richard Bruton becomes the new Minister for Communications, Climate Action and uh, the Environment. The cabinet reshuffle follows the resignation last week of Dennis Nocton as uh, minister. Our political editor, Eileen Brophy, joins us now to talk uh, about this and what it all means. Is there more stability today? for the government, Eileen, particularly that it can rely on the support of Michael Lowry and Noel Grealish for that matter. Yeah, there certainly is more support. Uh, Michael Lowry has always voted uh, with the government, um, but um, Noel Grealish uh, hasn't. Um, most of the time he has, but not, not all the time. Now he has given a commitment uh, to vote with the government. And what has he been given? Well, we <laughs> so yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the question. I mean, obviously, he's been given something uh, to you know for his his support, and he needs the support of both of those, along with um, all all of the others uh, that he has. Um, I suppose the fact that Peter uh, Fitzgerald, uh, Fitzpatrick, Patrick. has mm-hmm. left mm-hmm. Um, that that is also another headache for him. But I would imagine Peter Fitzpatrick, you know, uh, w- would vote with Fine Gael on most things, and probably certainly on the majority of things that he will, because he is um, or has been Fine Gael uh, while he's left the party. Now it really isn't over everything uh, that the party stands for. So I think he would expect his support in in in. Many Many things. So he's, you know, he moved very fast. Mm. He talked about uh, doing it next week, this, you know, this like this week. Uh, but he actually moved very, very fast on this. Uh, you know, a couple of surprises really. I think everybody uh, thought that that uh, Sean Kine uh, would be elevated, uh, but he's been elevated to chief whip and minister for the Gale duct. Uh, I don't think anybody saw Richard Bruton moving over to broadband, but. Mm. Um, but he is. Yeah, under um, normal circumstances, that would be a demotion of sorts, wouldn't it, uh, given that education is one of uh, the highest profile ministries uh, that there is. But I, I gather the objective here is uh, to put the broadband plan uh, and the crisis uh, that follows Dennis Nocton's resignation in safe hands, or experienced right. hands at least. Absolutely experienced hands. Uh, and he, you know, he, uh, he, he's, uh, he, he's always been considered 
put a safe pair of hands. And uh, everything that he seems to have done, like he looks after the detail of it. He he doesn't move terribly fast, but not slow either. Uh, but he won't rush into anything. He'll you know he he'll take everything in a stride. And and he's been known and noted for that. And and even as a, as we speak, like he has done uh, quite a lot within education mm. in a very short space of time. Uh, so uh, people feel that you know he he is uh, good in that in that sense. Uh, but I suppose they w- I think a lot of people would have probably expected uh, somebody more in rural area uh, to a minister from the rural area from outside of Dublin uh, to take over the broadband. Uh, but it is Richard Bruton now, and there, there's no doubt that I think people feel it is in safe hands. But then we all have to wait until uh, Peter Smith, uh, mm. you know, is looking into this to make sure uh, that you know that there's no um, pr- well, pr- you know, process of corruption uh, within in it at the moment, which is what uh, Timmy Dooley from Fianna Fáil has said that he can't see how there couldn't be. Uh, you know, you have Sinn Féin's uh, Brian Stanley s- saying that it's it's a, it's a shambolic, it's in a shambolic bulk state and then you have Michal Martin saying that it's hopelessly uh, mm. compromised so you've all these people coming out saying all of these things about a process that's been looked at at the moment and Michael Ring has said look you know lads sit back we only have a week uh, to wait to see uh, what Peter Smith has to say and like broadband is so important for people um, you know three bidders have already left the field now according to Michael Ring they've left because uh, the cream has gone off the top of, of it um, and there's only one bidder left and we all have just wait and see now um, if that one bidder um, is going to if, whether it's going to work or not mm. but we have we also have Michal Martin saying you know that he would like to see all the bidders now brought into a forum um, and and see you know if we can get back, some of them back on board as well mm. but the reality is that the you know the more you do like that um, the, this could be you know, could be uh, they could be waiting for this for an awful long time more, and um, like this, so many people without broadband mm. and businesses without broadband that really, um, I think people feel that this really has to move pretty fast, and that's mm. why they have Peter Smith, you know, reporting as soon as possible. And uh, I gather people are, are hoping that, that uh, they won't find themselves in the same forum up at the forecourts uh, in the event of uh, a legal challenge uh, to any decisions that be ma- made now in light of uh, the meetings uh, that took place between the Minister and uh, the last of the bidders. What about uh, the other two names uh, in uh, this re shuffle. Joe McHugh, were you surprised uh, at his elevation? Uh, not really. Uh, I mean, obviously surprised uh, that there, you know, that there, that Richard Bruton was uh, was moved. So I suppose we just had to wait and see who was going to take over in education. Uh, Joe McHugh was, you know, again, another person who is um, a safe pair of hands, um, certainly very dedicated to the job. When he was put in in the Gaeltuck there, uh, he went off. He spent his whole summer uh, learning Irish uh, at that time. So he'd be well got. Um, He, you know, has 
does things very quietly and I think he'll be very good in education. I think he, he is, you know, his people like him and think that, that, you know, he will do a good job there. Mm. But I suppose, yeah, when there was a bigger reshuffle uh, than we expected, we just expected really that Sean uh, Kine would be uh, elevated and that Sean Kenny would come in um, as well. So that, that wasn't that, a surprise then, was it? No? It was a bit, it was a bit of a surprise, yes. Mm. But I suppose because it happened so fast, um, a lot of people didn't have as, as much time, uh, you know, to speculate about who it was. So, you know, if the, if the, the Taoiseach hadn't have done this over the weekend, the Sunday papers would have been all full of speculation of, you know, reshuffles mm. and who would be moved and all that. So I think I suppose he put an end to all of that. All right. And it's a, a very big week uh, in terms of whether it's possible to reach an agreement on Brexit. Uh, and I take it that uh, this is very much to the fore of the government's considerations uh, that it is safer as long as it wants to be safe, given the support that it has now shored up. Uh, but in the eventuality of a deal being struck, it may decide that it's not as stable as it'd like to be and would like a, a better mandate on foot of a Brexit deal. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, obviously we know that uh, the Taoiseach is looking for a deal uh, for until 2020. And that's what, that's what he says he's looking for. Uh, then we have Micheál Martin, on the other hand, saying, look, um, we will look, we will stick with Bayou. And he's asked uh, both Leo Varadkar and himself sort of to come together and say, look, we're going to stick with this until we know where Brexit stands. And we're talking about January, really, before that, before we'll know on that. So in the meantime, that means the things that we were talking about on Friday, mm. uh, you know, the finance bill, mm. the abortion legislation, the social welfare bill, um, and obviously Brexit, that all of those uh, will be looked after between now and January. And Micheál Martin is saying, look, you know, we will give you an assurance uh, that we won't move on anything until until all of these are passed and until everything is ready and we come back in January. But then there are people certainly within uh, Fine Gael that think that, you know, that the Fine Fall are off there uh, working out uh, an election to call an election in the spring. And that's why they're looking for this time. So then there are people that, you know, that are saying that really does Leo want uh, an election in the spring or, you know, or, or does he not, or does he want one now when he's riding high? Um, but I think the, the Brexit, I think people expected a little bit more from Brexit this weekend. Uh, and obviously this week that he would have expected a deal. Things are not looking too good now for Brexit. So maybe um, that will soften his cough and he might want uh, to stay uh, in government for a little bit longer. Or he might bark a, a, a little loudly when he meets with Arlene Foster today because because yes. of what's going on. Exactly, he just, uh, and probably will. But there was certainly a feeling last week that, you know, he felt that Brexit was going to go well, uh, that there would be a deal, and that, you know, he'd be in the middle of an election, and this would be very good for him in the middle of an election. But that certainly uh, doesn't look as if that's going that way. So, I mean, there's, there's no doubt in my mind, and I think in a lot of people's mind, that politics is being played with this, but it's been played on both sides. Mm. Uh, but uh, outside of the calculated uh, move for uh, an election or to uh, an election, Eileen, uh, I gather that uh, given uh, the slim uh, 
chance that government has of winning every vote uh, at this stage uh, that uh, there is uh, the prospect that there'll be something unforeseen which will bring about an end to the current administration? Oh, something something's definitely going to happen. I mean, I think that most people, including ourselves, Michael, mm. would like to see us getting through to January, at least. Um, I mean, obviously, the finance bill, you know, the abortion legislation, social welfare, those things are, are very important. And indeed, Brexit is very important. So, uh, you know, if you're, if you're hobbling to the table uh, in Europe with Brexit, uh, it's not good. For our for our governments, not good for Ireland. So we need to you know, we need to be sure that uh, you know that that we have a stable government uh, when we're negotiating in Brexit, particularly this week and and up until January. So I think everybody would would hope that maybe until January, uh, uh, you know that that things will be will be fine and that you know we people will have respect for the fact that we are a government and we are standing together. Now we know that Michal Martin and Leo. Radker will meet either Monday or Friday because we know that um, Leo Varadkar is, is in Europe. So we would hope then at that stage uh, that they will be able to put uh, you know, negotiators uh, on either side, Dara Cleary for Fianna Fáil mm. with three others and Pascal uh, with, uh, for Fianna Gael on the other side or for the government so that they would be able to negotiate and see where we're going for there. But we definitely at this stage we either need to go to the country uh, or we need a stable government. We can't keep limping on like this with Brexit in the background. And what do members of Fianna Fáil make of Michal Martin's position on this? Uh, he's saying, look, let's just continue on as we are uh, until uh, there is a Brexit deal. Well, you see, I think like when he says that, he's really only talking about, oh, you know, up until about January, until we get over this impasse here. And there's a lot of people within Fianna Fáil that don't believe that we, you know, that they should have, um, that there should be a deal between Fianna Fáil uh, and, and Fianna Gael uh, and the government at this stage. That, you know, that that should be gone uh, and that they should go their own way. At that stage then, I suppose, if, if, if Leo Varadkar uh, can't get more um, people to, to sort of vote with the government. And remember that even uh, there with the budget, uh, we had people like Tommy Bruin vote with the government, which was probably mm. the first time ever. So people will vote with the government rather than have uh, an election or to cause an election. Uh, so I think Fianna Fáil just feel at this stage that they're getting a lot of the flack um, from the from the public uh, over you know propping up this government, so they would they some of them don't want to see this um, agreement put back in place at all. So I think you know we at this stage we really don't know where where all Fianna Fáil stand on this because you know they're very they're certainly very split on it. All right. Well, we'll hear more from Fianna Fáil later in the program. We we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you as always our political editor Eileen Brophy. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Halloween is on the way, but the fires are burning. Indeed, fires have been burning uh, for some time in uh, the Drogheda area, as local councillor Paul Bell has been telling me. Well, the problem is, is that in the lead up to uh, Halloween, uh, a number of incidents have taken place uh, involving the destruction of property. Uh, but what happened is that. Uh, on nights where residents leave really been there for collection uh, by waste disposal companies, uh, they have found that uh, they have come under attack 
where fires have been set in the estates. And then what happens is the uh, recycling bins in particular uh, are burned on the site. Uh, this has become a really big, big problem. Uh, and I've intervened with Loud County Council uh, to give some assistance uh, to understand why this is going on and what measures hmm. can be taken. It's a fad, uh, is it? Uh, 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 I mean, it's becoming popular, you said. Well, it seems to be coming with uh, difficulty and something that's developing so much so that when I spoke to one of the major waste disposal companies uh, last week, it was to me that in North County Dublin and County Loud and County Mead, in a three-week period, uh, they had 500 bins reports of stolen or destroyed. And they all involved, uh, youth been involved in, in fires, uh, and also a number of these issues have been reported to to Garish Corner. What really is sad is that uh, a lot of the residents then find, uh, you know, that they then have to pay for the replacement of the bin, and some companies are charging between 40 and 80 euros, and that's understandable in the sense that uh, the bin itself is quite expensive. But 500 bins missing. 500 bins missing in a three is uh, and most have been set on fire in certain a- areas. 500 in bins area. in the last three weeks, is that what you said, I'm sorry? La- yes, in the last three weeks. Uh, what, what the company also uh, reported to me is that this has been a growing issue over the last three years. Uh, and also that when it comes to Bonfina in particular, uh, that they noticed that that even... It seems to uh, accelerate in the sense that more and more bins get reported as, as being disposed of illegally or burned or stolen. Uh, and then all of a sudden it cuts off from the, that point on. But what they are advising residents is, that, uh, is to try and understand that if that is a, an issue ongoing in the area, that they could alert the bin companies and uh, to make some arrangements where the bin does not have to be left out early in the evening. But again, it is an, an absolute disgrace. Mm. Young people believe that they can do such a thing in their communities. And I am asking for parents to speak, uh, speak to their youths and, and to basically get it across the line that there are serious issues when people get involved in such activities yeah. have an extremely negative impact on the community. Well, it sounds as though there's a, a lot of people burning really bins, 500 bins in the last three weeks. That's yeah, what sure. that's that's what one company told you. And of course, there's several companies, uh, so we're talking about multiples of that amount. And you yeah. say that most of those bins have been burnt. Yeah, most of them have been burnt. Uh, and what seems to be happening is, is that the, the pattern of collections uh, by the bin companies seems to be understood. Uh, and on those evenings, that they seem to be more prevalent in the, in the incidents. Now, I don't know whether that's basically some type of understanding that uh, this is appropriate behaviour. Residents who are on the receiving end of this, be, uh, this conduct are saying it is absolutely unacceptable. And also, some some residents have spoken to me where over a three-year period they have and that's at a cost of between 60 and 80 euros that is unacceptable and what I am also what I am appealing to residents to do is to be vigilant about this uh, behaviour but also to understand that there are bonfire materials being collected from businesses uh, which have been set on fire in other areas other than for bonfire night and as late as this morning in St. Finian's Park uh, the fire service responded to a call on a pedestrian walkway to Denor Road when bonfire material was set on fire. That's Labour Party councillor Paul Bell speaking to me a little bit earlier on. Now, the Irish Business Against Litter 
group IBAL has published its summer survey of litter levels across 40 towns and cities. And Conor Hogan, spokesperson for IBAL, is on the line. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. I suppose uh, the first thing to say is uh, that we're doing a lot better now than we used to. 77% of towns and cities in your survey are found to be clean. And locally, Navan, Drogheda and Dundalk are all said to be clean to European norms. Yes, it's a very good result um, nationally in that uh, this survey was assessing how we shaped up for the summer months when we obviously welcome most of our tourists. The answer there was that we scrubbed up very well. 90% of our towns were free of litter and our city centres were also uh, clean. And locally, as you say, um, the three representatives in our league from Louth and Mead, uh, Navan, Dundalk and Drogheda, were all clean, particularly commendable performance from Navan, which jumped 20 places to 14th. And the Antashka report stated there's been a marked improvement in the town. But Drogheda and Dundalk have been consistently clean in recent years and they've maintained that performance. Uh, And it's not just a a case of how surveys can differ from one uh, survey to the next. Uh, You point uh, specifically to some examples of where Navin has literally cleaned up its act. Yes, and noticeable about Navin is that there were no seriously littered sites. So all the sites were either clean or moderately littered. And, you know, the top ranking ones included St. Patrick's Classical School, Navin Shopping Centre, Emmet Terrace and Park Talton. Those sites didn't just score well with regard to litter, but they were very well presented and maintained. Um, But the fact that there's no heavily littered site means that, you know, you can really look to build on this. And those moderately moderately littered sites, they can be easy easily fixed and made clean. So it augurs well for Navan going forward. And you give special mention to St. Patrick's Terrace uh, because uh, that would uh, be a a place where you'd often find furniture dumped and so on. That's right. Previously it was, um, you know, a poor site, but um, this time it was moderately littered, so it hasn't quite made the grade, but it wasn't subject to the level of dumping of furniture and so forth as previously. So again, we'd, we'd imagine that next time around that area should should be clean. Okay, uh, Dundalk, a uh, lot of good things to be said uh, about Dundalk and uh, the way you describe the streetscape as a fresh in appearance and pristine uh, probably ties into how it was topping the league uh, at one stage a number of years ago, but there are some things bringing it down, like the cigarette butts at DKIT. Yes, and cigarette butts are becoming an increasing focus of our work because they, they mightn't rank that highly on the uh, in the pecking order in terms of litter. They're not as visually unpleasing as other parts of litter maybe, but they are toxic and they enter our water and they're plastic and they cause a lot of harm to the environment. Yeah, there was a prevalence of cigarette butts at the Dublin Institute of Technology which was moderately littered. If, if, if the cigarette butts could be addressed, this would be a top-ranking site. They had been an issue at, D- Dublin, at Dundalk IT in the fa- in the past. Um, the main uh, littered site in, uh, noted by the surveyor in Dundalk was a former garage site on the road from Dublin, which presented poorly by far the most heavily littered site. Okay, there's a, a lot of good, it would seem to be said, uh, about Rahada. Some parts of uh, the town uh, rank very well, but uh, were also uh, uh, aesthetically pleasing, I think. That's right, yeah. They, there was an improvement not just in litter levels, but in general appearance and presentation. Uh, sites included St. Dominic's Park, West Street, 
Lidl at St. Mary's School as well. They mentioned Lidl in particular was exceptionally fresh and clean. That's good because often we find car parks at supermarkets can be prone to litter. The other point I'd make about Drogheda, similar to Navan, there were no heavily littered sites. So that town is not far off being pretty much free of litter. Okay, but we could be doing better, could we? Uh, You uh, highlight how we're spending more collecting uh, rubbish uh, than we are finding people. Yes, I mean, we, we believe we're not getting value for money from our litter enforcement policy. Um, we, as a country, we spend nine million a year on litter wardens. And, you know, it might surprise you to know that they only take in uh, less than a tenth of that in litter fines. That's both on the spot fines and through the courts. And the number of, re- the, the amount of revenue we're getting from fines mm. is falling year on year. Now, you could say they're doing a great job and people live in fear of the litter wardens and that's the way it should be. But I don't believe that to be the case. I think if you were to ask someone on the street, are they aware of the presence of litter wardens, they would probably say litter wardens aren't on their radar at all. Mm. I don't believe that they present a real deterrent to littering and, you know, they're costing us a lot of money. But even at that, it is very difficult for them to prosecute somebody. Uh, I mean, if they come across uh, an old mattress somewhere, how do you find out who put it there? Absolutely. I mean, it's litter enforcement has always been a difficulty from a number of points of view. Lack of evidence would be one. Finding the origin of the problem. In case of on-the-spot fines, it, it's it's a confrontational approach that that local authorities don't like. Then, when you get to court, mm. judges are often intolerant of their time being taken up by these small offences. So, you know, enforcement generally is a pro- is a problem. The, the the way we would suggest enforcement be done is that it should be concentrated on property owners and businesses who are acting in breach of the Litter Act by not having their premises free of litter. But going after individual offenders is a costly waste of time. Uh, and if it is a, a waste of time, that doesn't excuse uh, the local authority from cleaning it up and getting the place back to the way that it should be. And one of uh, the things that Antoshka, which carries out these surveys for you, has been highlighting to you is what they call long lie litter. And I take it that's uh, the type of litter that you've experienced in the past at places like St. Patrick's Terrace in Navan, where something is left there and remains there. Yes, I mean, you might think that when we survey litter in a town that, you know, the litter levels are going to be subject to the vagaries of weather and wind and maybe activity in the town, but actually they aren't. And most of the litter we find is what we call long lie. It has been perhaps dumped there over a period and the assessors can see that it's old litter, so to speak. It's very disheartening for us to find sometimes, not across every authority, but across several, that it's the same sites that are bad year on year. And, you know, we would, we would ask, why don't the local authorities at least address these bad spots as a way of making a contribution to a cleaner town? OK, thanks for joining us uh, this morning. Connor Horgan, spokesperson for IBAL. That's the Irish Businesses Against Litter Group. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as we've been hearing, Richard Bruton takes over from Dennis Nocton. Naaman Ryan is uh, the leader of uh, the Green Party and he's been telling me how he hopes uh, the new minister will bring about new opportunities for protecting the environment. I certainly hope so. I mean, I think the decision last week in the budget not to proceed with the increase in the carbon tax was just a symbol of the fact that the government isn't addressing the issue. And in doing that, 
it's not going to be good for our economy as well as not going to be good for our in, in, environment, our society. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for that. Firstly, if we don't reduce our emissions, uh, we're facing what the IPCC report, the International Panel on Climate Change, said last week is we're facing the long-run real threat to our future, to our children's future and their children's future. Uh, and we have to avert that. Like We can't just see most of the East Coast of Ireland is actually fairly low-lying. Sea level rise would see most of our cities and towns on the East Coast and indeed in Waterford, Limerick, Galway, elsewhere, flooded. Uh, we don't want that. Um, similarly, the kind of the extent of the storms, what we're starting to see, the weather we've seen, even the last year, that's at a one degree temperature rise. If we allow that to double to a two degree temperature rise, um, then the consequences just multiply. So we have to stop it for that fundamental reason. But also, um, we've agreed to it. We've agreed within the European Union and with our, and international, the Paris Climate Agreement. And if we don't do it, we're facing fines in the not that distant future, four or five years' time, mm. of about six, seven, eight hundred million euros a year. And that would be a real shame if we were spending money out for failing to do something because we fail to actually invest in doing the right thing in the first place. And uh, as part of uh, that discussion, uh, your colleague in uh, the Dáil, Catherine Martin, raised a, a number of issues, including public transport and bringing forward the Navin rail line uh, as a, a, an example. But uh, the Thonish just said uh, that for the first time, uh, there's a, a government in this country that is designing a sustainable way forward for the country through the next 20 years of planning uh, and that the Green Party is painting an inaccurate picture of what's happening in terms of climate change. I wish I wish that was the case. I, I, I wish I had a positive story to tell. But the truth is, our emissions are rising across every sector, including in transport. They're rising 4% per year. The truth is, there's not a single public transport project a major public transport project being built this year in this country on the Fine Gael. The truth is that next year there will be not a single public transport project built by Fine Gael, including that, that Navan Rail uh, mm. extension. What are we spending our money on? We're spending it on roads still. We're spending it next year on widening the approach road to Dublin on the N4, or widening the Dunkettle Dun, 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 Dun roundabout down in Cork. And that won't solve anything. Now, all that's going to do is going to bring people quicker to a gridlocked Dublin, and it's just not going to work. So the switch, the opportunity in tackling climate change is actually you take a completely different transport system. You actually reverse what has been the lengthening of commuting distances that have gone on for the last 30, 40 years, which increasingly are costing people incredible in time and money and actually start building back close to the centre of mm. towns and villages. You start prioritising walking, cycling, public transport. And once the statistics I pull out, and I just used as one example, but it's an incredible one, there are more schoolgirls, schoolgirls, driving themselves to mm. school than there are cycling to school. How have we created a society where that is happening? How have we created a society in my own girls' class? She's the only one in the year who cycles. And 
that's not good for health. That's not good. It's not good to have one third of the morning rush hour traffic is children being driven to school. We can change that in a way that makes it easier and better for everyone. Or in some circumstances, children driving to school, as you say yourself, uh, with uh, the amount of schoolgirls who are doing that. But uh, there is a a national development plan. I think this is uh, the point that Simon Coveney was making. There's 116 billion euro allocated uh, for spending on that plan. And he says 20% uh, is linked to climate change. 200 million on bus connects. Uh, There's a plan for a light rail system in the city and uh, that the government is planning for higher density and higher quality buildings uh, so that people will live closer to each other uh, and use less fuel. But also because uh, of these buildings, they'll be able to live closer to their place of work and won't need to drive as a result. It's all nonsense what they're saying. I'm sorry to be politically good, but it's utter fantastical nonsense. Just to take one example, they keep saying, oh, we've got this 21 billion is being spent now on climate change. If you look at it, of that, 13 billion is money that would have been spent anyway by the ESB and by Airgrid and by other state companies in their annual expenditure in just fixing mm. and maintaining our electricity grid. So they're counting some money that was previously just was seen as, well, that's money that ESB spend on grids. That's what they spend every year anyway. It's nothing new. It's nothing different. And if you look at the other area where we could really improve our lives by tackling climate change, the retrofitting of buildings to make them energy efficient, to make them warm and cosy homes. And and you mainly do that by putting insulation on on the outside, by putting solar panels on the roof, by putting a heat pump um, to heat the house and an electric vehicle charging point. These are the houses of the future. Now, it's not cheap. It's going to cost about 30 to whatever thousand per house to do it properly. But once you've done it, your heating bills every year are of a fraction of what they were and you have a much, much better home. Now, to do that, the, there are two types of housing, I suppose we have to do other three types. We have to do rent housing, uh, social housing and, and also private homes. Social housing alone just the council houses, which is what we need to do. Professor John Fitzgerald, the head of the ESRI and head of the Government Climate Advisory Committee, said in, in the committee, in a doll committee recently, we should be spending five billion on that retrofit alone. The bigger project then of private homes, you're looking at another at least 15, 20, 30 billion to do the two million houses, I mean, to retrofit two million houses in the country. Now, what have the government provided? They've provided about three billion. It's it's about a tenth of what's needed. Um, And that's in every figure. In everything they're doing, Mm. they're doing one-tenth of what we could and should be doing. And the really crazy thing about it is, it's actually not a bad investment. It's a bet. It's a good investment. If you can get the, if the government can get it right and make it easy for people to do the right thing, where the money for that is done through a long-term loan from the European mm. Investment Bank, it's all doable if there's political will. What's missing is the political leadership and political will, and that's what's become apparent in the last few weeks. Well, it appears as though there was the will to introduce a carbon tax, and I think many would say that for political reasons, the government has decided not to do that and the government would say, well, that's because people will have to pay more for petrol and diesel and coal and things that people use on a a daily basis and we're not ready for that yet, but that they are doing other things instead. Uh, And uh, the uh, increase in VRT for new diesel taxes, uh, supporting electric transport and giving more money towards uh, the greenways in this country where in 
fact, uh, very environmentally friendly uh, and part of the government's uh, approach, or, or so they would have you believe. Uh, do you think that uh, this will have any impact on emissions? No, again, just take that greenways one, because it's one I'm particularly interested in. I suppose I come from a background of uh, being involved in cycling tourism and, and campaign manager for the Dublin Cycling Campaign. They've given an additional £10 million. Um, now, £10 million will get you a fair bit of greenway. You know, that, that'll... Um, yeah, it might get you 50 kilometres or 100 kilometres of kind of new greenway, depending on where you build it. But in truth, it, it's, um, it's about one hundredth of uh, of the motorway building program and we that's the kind of what i think what they're doing is they're twinkling around the edge twinkling, uh, twinkling around the edges rather than actually doing system mm. change and the carbon tax is only is one useful tool in that regard it sends a signal it isn't the be all and end all it doesn't do it does more marginal change rather than system change mm. but i go back to what i was saying at the very start people saying oh we can't do it because it will cost us we're facing a bill of 600 million euros a year. That's inevitable, and it'll ramp up, and it won't go away. And for Ireland to absolve itself and say, well, should listen, why should we do anything about, do anything about climate change? And uh, there are two reasons we should. Firstly, because this is where the new economy is going to, and it's a better economy, it's a better country, mm. more efficient, it's more socially uh, together. But secondly, um, uh, the opting out and putting it off at some point the rest of the world is going to say to us a country which is one of the wealthiest countries in the world with the highest emissions in the world mm. and if we keep saying oh no we can't do it because what because Fine Gael hasn't the, the gumption and the courage of conviction to lead the country into this better future that's not good enough well the rest of the world won't see it that way uh, I, I think it's true to say that you're wrong in that uh, assertion and perhaps we can align ourselves with Donald Trump's environmental policies that's what we're doing at the moment and I don't think that's the clever way to go um, I think uh, I think this is a historic moment it's one of those there's never been a moment quite like it in terms of uh, our very future, the very security of our children, the ability of them to have a civilized, safe planet to live on is at risk. That's not where we are. Where we are as a country in Europe, uh, which is threatened by extreme weather, we've seen mm-hmm. it even in the last year, and it's our own self-interest to make the change. And I, okay. I think we will. I, I think Irish people are going to be very good at this. I think in some way what we saw last week is by the government denying the interest in taking court, taking mm. action, I think they, they've actually raised public concern and public okay. ambition. And, and that in some way gives, gives me hope. Eamon Ryan, uh, the leader of uh, the Green Party, was speaking to me before we came on air today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody listening in. Loretto from Drogheda got in touch, listening in to your interview with our political editor, Eileen Brophy, about all that's going on in Leinster House. And Loretto says that considering Mihon Martin's overtures, as she puts it, to the Taoiseach over the weekend... She can't see Fianna Fáil bringing down the government anytime soon. On the same topic, Seamus from Dundalk phoned in 
and he feels that Micheál Martin is right not to do anything that might jeopardise the government while the Brexit talks are at such a sensitive stage. This must take priority over everything else at the moment, say Seamus. Right. Another listener, Tom from RD, is sick of will they, won't they, regarding the government and whether there's going to be an election. He feels at the moment that uh, the government doesn't have a real majority anymore, so it's time to dissolve the government and go to the country. All right. Uh, well, Somebody we... that wants an election before Christmas. Well, yeah, and I'm sure there are some, uh, but be careful what you wish for uh, because uh, the Brexit negotiations are ongoing and uh, there is uh, the prospect uh, that uh, the United Kingdom could crash out of the European Union and there would be very serious consequences uh, to that for all of us. And to be in such a, a situation without a, a government, well, that could be one uh, that we might wish was otherwise. Paul got in touch to say that he's disappointed that the budget seems to have been forgotten because of what he terms as political games in Leinster House. It seems to be one catastrophe and controversy after another with this government. Mm. Time for them to go. Well, they're still there. <laughs> On um, Wheelie Bins and your interview with Councillor Paul Bell, uh, a listener says it's disgraceful what is going on. Unfortunately, not everyone has a back entrance to their home and they have no choice but to leave the bins at the front of their houses. Uh, Caroline from County Meath contacted us just to make the point that with the waste in bins it's going to be weighed and a big concern now for many people is that you'll be having your wheelie bins outside and then could anybody just come along and dump rubbish into it. Well it's a peculiar thing that these jumpers are up to. I mean it's obviously some sort of a a fad and to hear that somebody set a a wheelie bin on fire is not a, a, any sort of a, a big deal because there's always somebody out there looking for trouble and uh, there'll always be that sort of a, a mindset uh, where somebody will do that sort of thing but when you hear of hundreds of bins going missing over the last few weeks and Paul Bell suggesting that most of them have been put on fire and that's just the information that he got from one of the bin companies so I mean we're talking about multiples of that uh, because this is uh, some sort of a, a trend or something. Which is very worrying, mm. Michael. It really is. Uh, on your interview with Conor Horgan from the Irish Business Against Litter, uh, Jim says that he'd love to see the councils coming down heavy on those who do litter. Was in was listening with interest to your guest about how little fines that are given out and he says that the majority of people do care about their environment and care about keeping areas clean but there's always a few who don't and think nothing about dumping their rubbish wherever they want and he would like to see more people being fined heavily or or brought to court if they don't pay up. He feels that it's the only way to stop it. Mm. That there's a lot of littering still going on and dumping. Well, I think he's probably right, but how do you do that? Yes. And I suppose that's the question that I was asking Connor. I mean, if you come across uh, an old mattress dump somewhere, how do you know who put it there? Well, that's the point, mm. isn't it? And you'd want to have, you'd want to be watching places like 24 hours a day literally mm. because people go come out at night you know they're they're in the shadows and there's not maybe you're not always going to spot them doing it yeah so unless they leave the evidence behind mm. it's very hard to catch that's people. it unless you've got a camera or something that can link uh, the rubbish to the person who put it there well it's very difficult mary says i hear your guest mentioning cigarettes cigarette butts mm. but worse than that i feel it's that time of the year 
Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It is chewing gum. Why can't people just bin their gum? Just because it's small doesn't mean that it's not littering and it's everywhere, stuck to the pavements says Mary. Uh, Jim from Navin says that the hill of Tara has been destroyed by, as he describes, idiot dog owners throwing dog litter bags into hedges. What sort of selfish idiots are they? It's time to ban dogs from public parks and sacred sites so decent people can enjoy them, says Jim. Right. Not too happy about that. Mm, well, there's a, an easier solution that people do the right thing and pick up after their dogs. We also had the interview with Eamon Ryan and we had some response to that already. Pat from Bulbriggan texted in to say, how does uh, the deputy expect people to deal with big increases in home heating oil and petrol for hard-pressed pensioners and motorists trying to make a living travelling to work, says Pat. Mm. James says that people are finding it difficult enough paying for fuel at current prices. However, Jack from Navin phoned in and Jack says that you only have to look at the storms and the change in the climate to see the damage that's being caused. He cannot believe that the government didn't bring in the carbon tax, which really was widely anticipated All and right. expected. Well, the government is saying that uh, they took a, a number of steps uh, to combat climate change and that uh, I think it's 20% of uh, the funding in uh, the National Development Plan uh, is linked uh, to measures to combat climate change for that matter. Paddy from Draw had a phoned in on the same topic. He said, listening to that guy, Eamon Ryan, <laughs> First things first, uh, Paddy says, children going to school in bad weather. There's no drying facilities, Michael, when they arrive in school. Are they expected to sit in wet clothes all day? There's nowhere even for them to hang up the clothes. And if they, they, they did, if they had something to change into, you'd be afraid that they'd be taken on them. Mm. It's all very nice on paper to go on about fuel. Um, but he believes that the Green Party and others 
who have been elected should be looking at bringing in schemes to try and make it work. He says he's no problem with fuel staying at current prices, but that many people could not afford uh, to put oil in the tank if there was to be, a, uh, you know, a, a rise uh, because of carbon tax. He says there's already a lot of people who are going to be cold in their homes this winter, Michael. And you can't forget that, that there is fuel poverty out there. And if they could come in with something where we could still heat our homes mm. at the same money as now. But all it is is negative, negative, negative talk. And that's my objection to it. All right. Well, I suppose uh, those people who wanted a, a carbon tax would have said that you should have uh, done something to help people who are suffering from fuel, fuel poverty as uh, they put it. And that might be uh, to retrograde uh, retrofit the uh, houses uh, for insulation and that sort of uh, thing so that you need less fuel uh, or to uh, extend something like the fuel allowance uh, but to take mitigating steps uh, so that whilst uh, you might be paying more for fuel you'll use less of it or you'll get more support from the state. We had a couple of comments Michael on Brexit and I know we're going to be covering that this later in the mm. programme. Tom from Dundalk says that he's getting extremely worried in relation to uh, the Brexit talks. He says we just don't seem to be getting any closer to a deal that there's all this hype that a deal could be reached Mm. and then it doesn't happen. Well we were very close in fact it was all but done yesterday and then we blinked and then it was undone. I know Mm. and we didn't even know it was happening nearly (laughs) at all. That's right yes. Uh, Mm. Susan uh, was in touch on Brexit and it's just from the DUP's point of view she says that from reading the, the papers and listening to the news over the weekend it seems to her that the DUP is preparing for a hard Brexit and that from her point of view is a real cause for concern because if they are not on board how is it going to be achieved Mm. and she's really astonished that they are coming at it from this point of view when you consider that the majority of the people in the north of Ireland Mm. voted against Mm. you know leaving the EU Mm -hmm. so that's her thoughts on it Okay yeah I'm not sure that they matter to uh, the DUP uh, because uh, their focus is obviously on the union as uh, they say as they would put it Mm. Just one or two more Mm. comments Michael we I read out a comment on Friday from a pensioner who was complaining really about when the increase would come in Mm. that it wouldn't come in straight away Yeah this is the increase in the pension Yes and Germany got in touch to say that the pensioners got their increase last March and they'll get it next year it's one year what they want arise every month thank you from Jeremy from uh, Jer- I'm not going to be able to say it now <laughs> who gets up early every morning yeah Okay. That's what he says. He gets up early every morning. And we had another listener who was in touch to say, um, in relation to Morris McCabe, that Morris McCabe is an inspiration to all the good guardy out there, that he gives strength to people. And it's a pity that he didn't get enough support from his colleagues when he was going through all of this. Mm. So um, that's really it, Michael, for today. All right. Well, there's quite a bit in that. And thanks for uh, sharing it with us and indeed to everybody who took the time to share their thoughts with you, for that matter, Marie. And if you'd like to add to what's being said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 715 958. 
Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Uh, TD for me, the East. Uh, Thomas Byrne joins us uh, this morning and uh, we've got past uh, the budget in terms of uh, the confidence and supply agreement that your party has with uh, the government. Where do you see that going from here? Well, I suppose there's two strands now to it. I mean, first is, you know, in accordance with the confidence supply agreement, we've kept our word. We've done what we said that we would do, which was, you know, facilitate three budgets. That's mm. happened now. A little bit more to go with the social welfare bill and the finance bill. Mm. So we've done that. There'll be a review process entered into now to see, you know, how well or how badly the confidence supply did. And that's going to be robust and thorough. Uh, but at the same time, uh, with Brexit going on, we felt that there was no point in anybody uh, creating instability over the next uh, few weeks and months. Now, we've never created instability since the last general election. In fact, we've done quite the opposite to create stability. So as part of that, we've said, Michal has said on, mm. on Friday to Leo Varadkar that you know we will not pull down the government between now and the end of Brexit. So that that's a side-by-side thing uh, with the review of confidence and supply that will go on as well. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we... Do you, do you want a spring election? Uh, do you want to no, renew what, what the it, agreement? What it, really means, what it really means is more of the same. You know, we... we but we, is that, that, we is that it? You want, you, want, you want to renew the agreement, no, do you? No, we haven't said that either. But what, no, but what do you what want? We, what we have done is what, hmm. what we have provided over the last number of years is stable government. We'd rather have been the lead party in that government ourselves. And hmm. when, the, when, it, when the election comes, look, an election will come, it's a democracy. But whenever it comes, uh, we want to be the government of this country. Is it a stable government? Well, it's as stable as it can be uh, with the numbers that it's we're It's as stable as it generation. negotiates, isn't it? Will you be asking, will Fianna Fáil be asking uh, the Taoiseach uh, what the government has offered to Noel Grealish? Um, we we have a list of policy priorities that we have, you know, set down in the Conference of Supply Agreement that yeah. we have actually achieved ourselves. Um, I don't know what Noel Grealish has been offered. But surely, no that's, offered. surely that's a priority well, to everybody, that decisions are, are made on the basis of the merit of the argument and not on the support for government? Well, what I'd say in terms of Fianna Fáil, we have actually got value for the votes that we got in the sense that we have set down a list of policy priorities mm. and we've extracted them from the government. So Fine Gael were criticising one of the Sunday papers yesterday for, for, for being totally unlike Fine Gael and government. And the reason for that is uh, they've been forced to do things by Fianna Fáil through the influence that we have on the budgetary process and in general. So it's you're happy to... everything that we want. But, but you're happy to support a government that's horse trading. We're not supporting a government. Um, we're facilitating well, the continuance so, of that okay. government in mm. office. Now, what's going to happen is separate. So this is in terms of the national interest, in terms of keeping things stable. You know, we, we have accused the Taoiseach mm. of looking for instability. Uh, there have been examples of where Fine Gael has been unstable, obviously, in the mm. last number of weeks. We have tried since uh, early, the last general election in 2016 to provide that stability, to be sensible, to be reliable, to be a party that you can mm. count on their word. So what we're saying is, now that Brexit is coming up, the most important thing in the national interest, while these negotiations take place and uh, while they're actually ratified, you know, whatever agreement comes out Mm. of it is ratified, that we won't do anything, that we'll give more of the same stability that Fianna Fáil has given Mm. over the last number of years, so as not to upset that. But But side by side with that, we will be be looking at how the conference supply... But are are you willing to do that on the basis that, let's say, 10 or 15 million euro goes to Galway? Well, I, I have no evidence that 10 or 15 no, million euros... No, but that's what I'm asking. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm asking no you, do, do, do you not have, want to know what, what the we deal is? For, what we, well, well I, I don't know that there was a deal, but I should say this, in terms of pre- other arrangements, we have, Michal okay. Martin has asked in the doll for any deals okay. that are set out to be set out by the government publicly, and that's that's what we've asked to do. Well, you know there's a deal with example. Michael Lowry, don't you? And well, he hasn't set that out publicly. Well, 
the Fine Gael ministers keep denying that. You know, it's very hard to believe that, to be quite honest, but they do keep denying that. Uh, and we have, Michael Martin certainly mm-hmm. has pressed that issue in the doll of the Taoiseach. So they've been fobbing exactly you off. Well, I wouldn't say that, you know. I mean, Well, you believe there's a deal, or, or you find it hard to believe that the, there isn't a deal. There may well be. Some, and they're telling you there isn't a, a deal, and that's within, the end of the story, so they're the, fobbing you off. Sometimes with independence, and you see this particularly with the independent alliance, uh, when something is about to happen, they then go in and claim credit and say, say that they're getting it. I mean, that is something that happens, and we've seen it happen in Tipperary at various hospital announcements from Michael Lowry. We may see it mm. happen in Galway. I have no idea. Um but we've certainly seen it with the Independent Alliance. Look, the key priority for us over the next few weeks and months mm. is to make sure the country is in a good place in relation to Brexit. Michal Martin is out in Brussels this week mm. meeting with our colleagues who are well, I, I suppose it would be ridiculous to think that Fianna Fáil would be against this kind of thing because you invented it, uh, this idea of propping up independence uh, through uh, sweeteners uh, and uh, the Healy Rays, uh, I think, a prime example of that. Uh, but I suppose people in Galway might be delighted uh, that Galway 2020 has been saved through through additional uh, funding and uh, Noel Grealish undoubtedly will be thanked for that in the next election. I, I have no doubt but I've also no doubt that Galway 2020 has would, would be a key priority of the Department of Culture at the moment. I've no doubt about that. I don't think it would take an independent TD in Galway. I know Eamon O'Keefe has been uh, talking about that as well, my colleague in Galway. So, you know, I, I but look, maybe maybe he should have uh, supported the government and got the money. I mean, is that the way sorry, we do business around here? Sorry, in terms of what Fianna Fáil have done over the last mm. number of years, is actually to totally change the direction of the Fine Gael government. First of all, there was a huge row about water charges. We felt that this was causing huge strife in the, in the Irish state, was causing huge division. We wanted to put an end mm. to it because we just felt it was just it was just too much hassle for well, the country. It, we couldn't concentrate on anything else. Whatever that it is, delivered. a new that school, a new hospital, a new university, a new road, whatever it is that goes to Galway uh, as a result of this deal means that somewhere else in the country that might be more deserving will lose out. Well, what we're looking for, say, with, in terms of what Fianna Fáil has extracted from the government is, for example, the affordable housing scheme. There's going to be a real affordable housing scheme. We've extracted more money for mm. social housing. We, we've we've you, changed, you we've changed you, the way. Do you see when you ignore the question? I'm it, not it, 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 telling you what, I can't it, it, tell you what an independent But when you, when you done, ignore the I question, can't. it means that you're turning a blind eye. Instead of sitting here and saying, well, we want to know what the deal is and yeah, you know, yeah, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't so support that, that kind of thing. I've said that already, that Michal Martin has asked questions in the Dáil mm. about whatever deal has been done with Michael Lurie on a number of occasions and I've no doubt that he'll ask those questions again in relation to Noel Grealish and mm. he can ask Noel Grealish himself but it's very clearly on the record what Fianna Fáil has looked for and what deal mm. we have got it's called the Confidence Supply Agreement and we have honoured our word in accordance with that and we've got you know we've got certain policies mm. out of it and we'll review uh, have a proper review just to see how well that did. But make m- no mistake, mm. Michael, Fianna Fáil wants to be in government ourselves. We want to be uh, the lead party in uh, government. Uh, have and you got it- your posters ready to go up for an election on the 7th of no. December? It's this well. I mean, that if, if the teacher calls an election on the seventh of December, mm. that's a matter for him. He's entitled to go to the president well, it, to ask him. What, what Fianna Fáil have said is that a, we will a matter for Mrs May, is it not? It, it, well, it may well be, but uh, we have we have said very clearly that if there's an election uh, before the, the mm. Brexit deal is finished or whatever, or before mm. the, the crash out, God, mm. please God, it doesn't happen. Um, Fianna Fáil will not be the cause of precipitating an election during that crucial period. Mm. That's what we're there, there, there is Other the prospect. Other people could be the cause of that. The teacher okay. could decide. Mm. That's up to him. Mm. But Fianna Fáil will not be the cause of that because we don't believe that that is in the national There interest. is the prospect of a, a deal this week. In that uh, event, would you expect an election before Christmas? Well, the... the no, because well, again, unless the Taoiseach decides, but my, our assessment of it is that obviously the British will have to ratify that deal, uh, the European Parliament will have to ratify that deal, and that could there's a process there that could last up until the, the two-year deadline is up in March, so it's possible that there wouldn't be an election before March, but 
our only role in this is saying that we won't do this. We will not precipitate an election because we feel it's not in the national interest during this critical period. Mm. The Taoiseach can, has absolute right under the Constitution to go to the President and look for dissolution of the Dáil. If he does that, Fianna Fáil will be ready. But we don't think that it's necessary at this particular time. But crucially, Michael, side mm. by side with that, we will be reviewing the Confidence and Supply Agreement. We will be looking at what it has delivered, mm. what, what, what it hasn't delivered, what lessons are to be learned, and then a decision as to where we go from there in terms of whether it continues or whether it doesn't continue. But okay. Michael, one, this is a democracy. There will be an election. The only question is when. Of course, yeah. But the margins are so tight that there is a, a chance that an election will be forced on the government. Uh, is it not better to plan the timing of an election rather than find yourself in the middle of well, a, a Brexit, no deal, crashing out, well, chaotic well, scenario uh, and uh, well, well, an well, unexpected I mean, election well, forced we have, on Well, you. we have offered to, to leave Radcliffe is that there wouldn't be an election, that we certainly wouldn't precipitate one this side of the Brexit talks concluding and being ratified this side of March. So, you know, that's our offer. That's that's what we have proposed. We think it's necessary for the interest of stability. If the Taoiseach wants to go with that, then that's up to him and there won't be an election. Politicians are always preparing for elections. Media pundits are always preparing and speculating about elections. But there's all, always, during that speculation, during that preparation, there's always work to be done. Uh, and there's work to be done in terms of uh, Brexit. Obviously, Pina Fáil and Michal Martin will be playing a role in that, by the way, as well, over in Brussels this week with our, with our colleagues in, in our group in, in, in Europe and, and, and our TDs as well. Um, there's also a role in domestic politics to get the social welfare bill through mm. if, the, if the government fell before Christmas. we put into doubt uh, social welfare uh, increases. The finance bill has to go through that determines the the money that the country has for next year. So, and there's a European rule that insists that that goes through before Christmas. So if that, if that doesn't go through before Christmas, we're in trouble too. And we're saying that we'll we'll facilitate all of that. If others don't want to take mm-hmm. us up on that, that's their business. But we are offering. Uh, sensible politics during this very, very difficult period for the country. Okay, and one of the reasons we're having this conversation is because of the resignation of Dennis Nocton. What do you think of the national broadband plan uh, and if we're back to the drawing board? Well, I suspect that we are. I think this is Really? Whole, yeah, I mean, mm. the whole thing, in my opinion, is compromised beyond repair. Uh, the mind absolutely boggles. Uh, when the first uh, revelations came out about particular meetings between Minister Nocton and particular bidders, uh, there was a bit of shock. But I have to say, in the Dáil uh, on Thursday evening when the Taoiseach announced that he had a, a number of other dinners with this lead bidder, I have to say, jaws dropped all across the Dáil floor. People simply couldn't believe what was going on behind the scenes. And what's going on in front of the scenes and in the public was a contract that was really falling apart anyway. Last February when Enet was left as the only bidder, uh, we looked for a review and we, we were roundly criticised um, saying that Fianna Fáil are going to stop broadband, etc. We thought it was necessary at that time. Now, had our advice been taken at that time, that review would be long over, and maybe some of this stuff would have been exposed by now, or maybe wouldn't have happened in terms of particular dinners because the review was ongoing. Mm. Uh, we'd be in a totally different place here, and the priority has to be uh, to get broadband. But there was very strange stuff uh, going on in terms of uh, relationships there. It could well be that Minister Nocton was determined just simply to deliver broadband and to push it on as, as best he could. Uh, but that wasn't being achieved. This process is going on for about seven years. And the, the bidding process, I think, is going on for about three years. Uh, so it's taking forever. In the meantime, people don't have broadband. And let's, let's te- te- technology is going to move on anyway. But when you say you think it's back to the drawing board, are you suggesting that this will be put out to tender again? There will be looking for fresh bids? 
and uh, and start the process well, all over again. Well, I mean, obviously we have to have a clean process, but we also have to make sure that broadband is actually delivered. So that those two things, you know, need to work side by side. Uh, the ESB, for example, as a state agency, has rolled out cyber broadband in lots of our towns uh, in conjunction with Vodafone. Now, I'm not advocating for any particular, certainly commercial organisations, but the ESB is a state organisation. They've shown that they're able to do things when they want to do them, uh, and that may well be an avenue that we have to go down. But EU law, unfortunately, will will there'll have to be procurement and all of this. But uh, I think it's quite possible a mistake was made when this was put out to the public tender rather than the state doing it uh, itself because it simply has taken uh, too long. If you get a good state agency there uh, to do this, to roll it out, it can be done if the determination is there. Right, and we've a new minister now. Uh, how do you expect Richard Bruton to act? Well, I mean, look, I've obviously worked closely with Richard Bruton over the last number of years and shadowed him on, on the other side of the Dáil Chamber. I, I suspect Richard Bruton will act in, in a, completely in accordance with the book. Um, I have been putting him under pressure in relation to a number of school projects and delivering on them. And certainly I think um, that type of pressure works. And if that we are, if we are, yeah, as an opposition, um, holding him to account in terms of actually delivering on broadband, uh, I have no doubt uh, that he is probably among those ministers, uh, probably the best one to do it in terms of the experience that he has. Mm. I'd rather Fianna Fáil was doing it because I think we'd have a better understanding of what's actually needed with the general public uh, and rural roads, rural lanes. And indeed, it has to be said in a lot okay, of housing but, states. But I mean, there's big decisions to be made here. And I mean, he has to get to the bottom of uh, the relationship, what's at the root of the relationship mm. uh, between uh, Dennis Nocton and Mr. McCourt. And if anybody was advantaged as a, a result, of well, there, if anyone was advantaged as a result of all of this, I mean the thing would definitely have to collapse. Mm. There's no question about that. I, I think what he needs to but do he needs to act fairly quickly, doesn't he? Like, I mean, I I used to criticise his action plan on education mm. because it left out a lot of very important stuff, you know. But at least he was ticking boxes as he was going along and saying, "Right, I did this," even if it was very minor. I did this, and you could hold him to account in relation to that. So I think if he takes that approach uh, on broadband, if he if he devises an action plan or a list of things that have to be done, uh, that he can be held publicly accountable for, uh, that he can show are being done or, or, or when they'll be done, I think that will go a long way but it is going to require us and Fianna Fáil really you know, holding them to the pin of the collar to make sure that this is actually delivered and this is actually worked on and this is treated with the priority and urgency uh, that it deserves. Okay, but uh, you still contend uh, that it may be 2020 before the next election? No, I haven't said that at all. No, but I, uh, I haven't I'm said it. I said might be. Well, I haven't said it. We don't know when the election will be. I mean, when the Taoiseach... So uh, there's no well, way it'll last on. that long, is it? No, no, I haven't said that. <laughs> but when the Taoiseach, when the Taoiseach <laughs> asked for uh, Michal Martin to commit to that during mm. the summer, I mean, he was fobbed off completely by mm. Michal Martin, uh, you know, slapped away, and uh, Leo Fradgar really never came back on that. Like, he kind of very meekly did over the weekend. Is it but possible for the government to remain in office until 2020? Well, we it's possible for the government to remain in office until February 2021. Uh, whether that happens or not, um, it's hard to judge at this stage. But what we've said is we give everything an open mind. Um, we will look at the confidence supply agreement and we will determine whether to continue it or not continue it. And no decision has been made in relation to that. So it is, it is just as possible for an election to be held next summer as it is for it to be held in February 2021. So mm. we don't know, but we're going to do a lot of work over the next few weeks and months reviewing the conference supply as well as helping the government out with their Brexit strategy to make sure that there's one voice going from this country uh, abroad and nobody can say uh, that Fianna Fáil is speaking differently or Fianna Fáil is doing anything to destabilise the negotiating position of the government. OK, thanks for coming in to us today, Fianna Fáil TD, in me, the Thomas Byrne. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
One in four published its annual report last week showing how it costs over one million euro to provide its services every year. The group offers counselling to victims of childhood sexual abuse. 120 people receive this service, but because the demand is so high, one in four says its waiting list had stood at seven months forcing us to close the list in July. The group, which also works with sex offenders, is very concerned because financial constraints preventing intervention means people who have abused children and want to stop abusing children may go on to abuse more children because the help that they are looking for isn't available. One in four's executive director, Maeve Lewis, joins us now. And you've some 15 people who've identified themselves as uh, child sexual abusers uh, who are on waiting lists for treatment. Is that right? Good morning, Michael. Yes, um, last year on our sex offender programme, the Phoenix programme, we worked with 54 offenders and indeed 23 of their family members. And we really see this as um, a core child protection strategy. If we can help men or indeed women who sexually abuse children to understand the pathways that led them there and the triggers that um, that start their, their behaviour, uh, that means that other children are going to be safe. So at the moment, we have actually 15 people on a waiting list for that programme. Um, it will certainly be well into the new year before we can see them. And I think it's extraordinary that people who acknowledge they've sexually harmed children, who are actually willing to um, enter an intervention programme, mm have to wait and are out there perhaps posing a risk to children. They, they haven't been referred to you by the courts or such like? Uh, no, some of them may have been referred mm. by TUSLA, the Child Protection mm. Service, but many of them are, well, self-referrals in the sense there's been a disclosure in their families and uh, they acknowledge that they harm somebody in their families, uh, a child in their families, and now they are willing to get help. Indeed, uh, I think uh, about uh, one third of the abusers uh, who you saw last year had uh, abused a child in their own family, hadn't they? That's right. About a third had abused a child in their own family. Um, another third had abused a child that they knew in their community, um, either through their profession, you know, teachers or sports coaches or whatever who had access to children. And another third had downloaded and shared images of child sexual abuse on the internet. And if they are referred to you by TUSLA, are they obliged to, to seek help then? No, I mean, our programme is unique in the sense um, we work with both convicted and non-convicted offenders. About two-thirds of the men who come to us are not convicted and will never be convicted because the person they abused doesn't want to make a statement to the Gordie. Um, So they are not obliged to come to us. Um, Sometimes people are referred through the courts or perhaps by a solicitor when they've been caught. and we really have to work very carefully to work out their motivation. But they only can come on the programme when they acknowledge that they have sexually harmed a child. Mm. And um, last year, at the first meeting, and about 31% of those men acknowledged they'd harmed more than one child. And usually, as our work with them unfolds, we begin to hear more and more details of perhaps other children um, who they may have abused as well. And other activity, uh, whether that's on the internet or, or in person with a, a, another human being, a minor as the case may be. You've also been saying that only 5% of uh, offenders are ever prosecuted and that part of uh, the reason for that is uh, that uh, those who have been victims of that uh, abuse are afraid to engage with uh, the criminal justice system. 
Yeah, um, in 2017, we supported 31 clients through criminal trials um, in the Circuit Criminal Court or the Central Criminal Court, so very serious sexual offences. Um, so that's only a small proportion of the people who come to us. And of those people, um, uh, there were five guilty pleas, which is, is very positive, um, 11 guilty verdicts, but there were eight not guilty verdicts and indeed four hung juries. So this just goes to show how difficult it is to reach the very high um, level of proof that's required in a criminal trial. And our clients are all adults who were sexually abused as children in the past 10, 20, even 30 years ago. I mean, there's no forensic evidence. There's usually no witnesses. So it all comes down to, I suppose, the credibility of the account the victim of the sexual crime can give in court. And all our clients, almost all our clients, say that if they knew the ordeal they were facing in the criminal trial, they probably would not have actually made a complaint in the first place because obviously we live in a country where there is due process, mm. where there is the presumption of innocence and I don't think any of us would want that to change if any of us were charged with a very serious crime, uh, we would want a fair trial. But it is so difficult to reach the high level of proof in sexual offence cases because, as I've said, no witnesses, no um, forensic evidence often so really what the defence will often do is try to tear apart the character of the person, the complainant, their behaviour, their history. Um, for example, it's not uncommon for somebody who's been sexually abused as life goes on to, for example, develop an addiction problem to try and cope with the terrible pain. And that will be used as an effort to undermine their character and their reliability. Um, and they become so re-victimised. As, uh, yeah. And so people are being completely re-traumatised in the criminal trial. So a lot of our clients just cannot face that ordeal. It, it's also true though, to say a lot of our clients who've been sexually abused actually do not want the person who abused them, especially if it's a family member, to end up in jail. So they're very reluctant to go down that road. Mm. Uh, they do want the abuse to stop and other children to be safe. So that is why we became involved in providing um, an intervention programme for sex offenders. And tell, it came from what our clients were asking us to tell, do. Tell us a, a little bit more about the Phoenix programme, uh, this intervention programme. You worked with uh, 54 uh, abusers last year. Does this intervention work? Does it stop that behaviour? Does it change mindsets? Uh, because uh, I think a lot of the time uh, abusers don't feel that they're doing anything wrong. That's absolutely true, Michael. I mean, when people come to us, they tend to have a very distorted way of thinking about what they've done. They minimise what they've done. They they tell us that, for example, the child was complicit or, or you know, consented to the behaviour. And, of course, the child can never do that. Um, so the programme really is about helping people to see how thinking is so distorted to understand the incredible harm they've caused to somebody and to work out what they need to do in their lives to be safe so that they don't continue that. What, what is it maybe that prompts them to come to you, that prompts them to seek help? What is it that makes them say to themselves, my thinking is distorted, I, I need to adjust it, uh, because that's a, a, a odd thing uh, to... Uh, volunteer yourself for, is it not? I suppose most people would think that everybody thinks the same way as me. Um, they come to us because they've been caught in one way or another. Maybe there's been a disclosure within the family. It mightn't be the strong arm of the law, but somebody else knows. Mm-hmm. The, the, 
you know, the guards have raided mm. their house and, and taken all their devices and computers. Um, some of them may be facing a trial. So, uh, unfortunately, I don't think anybody's ever come to us of their own volition. Right. Yeah, you know, um, but to come on our programme, they have to acknowledge that they have sexually harmed a child and they have to agree that we immediately will notify the Tusla Child Protection Team in the area they live in and they must meet a social worker to work out a child safeguarding plan and that we'll also inform the Gardaí in the area in which they're living. Now, if there isn't a complainant witness, very often there's very little the Gardaí can do, but they will work with us in whatever way they can. Um, the programme runs over two years. Uh, it's a group treatment programme and when, when people have satisfactorily completed that programme, they can continue to do an aftercare programme with us for another two years. So, Michael, it's very hard to say. I mm. mean, we don't believe there's a cure. Mm. We believe sex offenders need to be managed in the community. But I would say we've worked with 164 offenders now since the programme started in uh, 2010. And to the best of our knowledge, six of them have reoffended. Now, I do say to the best of our knowledge, because... Of course. Yeah, and it's a, a very small percentage uh, and would indicate uh, that there is a, a level of success and quite probably great success through this type of intervention. Uh, and to put all of this into context, you've 15 possible offenders, people who have offended, uh, who feel that they may offend, who are seeking help from you. Uh, you believe that this programme could stop them from uh, abusing children, uh, but Put simply, you don't have the money to do that for at least a couple of months. Certainly, it could be well into the new year before we can meet those people. And, um, I mean, as the Phoenix programme becomes more established, you know, we are getting more and more referrals. Um, people are travelling, Michael, from all over the country to this programme uh, because there simply aren't programmes available where they live. We have people coming from the west of Ireland, uh, from up around um, your area, up around Louth, um, Cork, you know, southeast, uh, because there aren't programmes in their locality. So that requires a certain commitment on the part of the offender to make that journey every week to attend their group. Um, and I believe we absolutely need to have these types of programmes right across the country. One group that really concerns us is that there's been an increasing number of young offenders coming on the programme. So we have a special group for the 18 to 25 year olds now. And every one of those young men uh, began their journey to offending by downloading images of child abuse at around the very young ages, around puberty, um, becoming sexualised to those images and going on to act out with younger children, um, younger siblings or other people, that the children that they knew. And given, I suppose, the fact that we live in an age where it's no longer a big clunky computer in the middle of the living room and kids, young, very young kids, have iPhones and other devices where they can access this type of material and parents usually have no idea what they're doing. Um, that's, I mean, I think there's a tsunami of challenges for that age group uh, coming down the road at us as a society and I don't believe we're in any way uh, really taking that seriously. Okay, we have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Maeve Lewis, Executive Director with One and Four. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie now, European leaders will meet on Wednesday and uh, the future of uh, the United Kingdom and its relationship uh, with uh, the European Union will top the agenda. 
there's no prospect of a Brexit deal, it would seem. We're joined by Sinn Féin MEP Matt Carthy. Matt Carthy, that's uh, following on from all of uh, the excitement yesterday. Uh, and uh, I think uh, that people were expecting that uh, a deal would be uh, announced today following Dominic Raab's surprise visit uh, to Brussels. But Michel Barnier has put that to bed and it seems as though they're entering into these talks on Wednesday without anything on the table to consider. Yes, Michael, and I have to say I've been on the road for the past hour and the way developments have been going over the past number of days, it's possible the entire story has flipped on its head again while I was um, out of commission, so to speak, because um, yesterday was yet another one of those days where we had contradiction, where we had false dawns, where we had false hopes, um, and where we had essentially a reinforcement that the British government um, are at odds with themselves. And in that circumstance, um, I think it it crystallises the need for the, U- the European Union negotiators at the behest of the Irish government to be very reluctant to sign up to something that isn't cast iron in terms of its legal certainty. Because what we've seen right from the moment of the so-called deal last December, certainly the political agreement last December, is that the British government have rolled back, they've Mm. um, contradicted themselves, they've um, stated on on occasions that they're open for a settlement and then on other occasions, as yesterday, um, after creating all the impressions that um, a negotiated settlement was finally on the way then for the the British minister to actually travel all the way to to Europe to actually say, well, actually, no. Do you think there's more to it, though? Do you think there's more that uh, we just haven't heard yet? My understanding is that on a, on the w- wide range of issues that, there, that the negotiators are close to an agreement, mm. but this issue pertaining to the, the customs union, yep. to the Irish backstop, um, and to the relationship, essentially, of how you, how you maintain and protect that backstop, um, that there, there, there is a lot of confluence. And but if there is no solution there, it's lose-lose for us, isn't it? It is, but if there's a bad solution or if there's a solution that allows the British government to renege at a future stage, mm. well, then we're, all we're doing is prolonging the lose-lose scenario. So mm. in our view, it is crucially important that the Irish government um, ensure that the European Union are um, steadfast in relation to ensuring that the North is protected. Because let's remember this, even if the backstop is enacted to the letter by which it was it was negotiated last December, there still is negatives from an Irish point of view. So it covers areas pertaining to the customs union, mm. but it doesn't mean that the North remains part of the single market, which in our view is crucially important. It doesn't cover services, for example. So lots of the cross-border businesses that we've been hearing about over the past number of years um, and have which have come into the spotlight are actually service bu- businesses. So while it will protect and mm. provide some assurances for those involved in the transport of goods, for those who are involved in the trading of services on a north-south basis. We know, for example, that the backstop doesn't cover the rights of citizens. So in a very simple way... We okay, uh, and I'm sure that list could go on, but is it not... Uh, easier to say that for all its faults, the backstop is far better than no deal and no deal is as bad as it gets for all of the people on this island. 
Absolutely. The backstop at this point is as good as it gets. The point I'm making is that we can't allow it to slip any further because mm. the uncertainties that that would create um, would be just um, too mind-boggling to even appreciate. And this, I'm saying that as somebody who for yeah. the past two years has been dealing with the potential permutations of all of the fallout. So yes, we need the backstop implemented and we need it implemented in full. But I think what we've seen over the past, even the past 24 hours, is that that backstop needs to be legally enforceable because we simply cannot trust a British government, especially one that is so beholden to the hardest line and the hardest right of the British Tory Mm. party and the DUP because we know that they will try and unpick any deal that's negotiated as soon as the ink is dry on the paper. So therefore, we need to ensure that... So so to put it this way, absolutely it would be our preference as a country that Britain remains within the customs union and, if possible, as closely aligned to the single market Mm. as is humanly possible. But we can't just simply allow uh, British assurance that that will be the case in in a non-timelined fashion to also incorporate the North. We, yeah, well, we need especially a specific arrangement pertaining to the North that says that the backstop will apply unless and until a further integrated measure is adopted at some point in the future. Well, undoubtedly, uh, it would be to the advantage of people south of the border, but probably to all of the people on this island and probably to all of the people in Britain, if uh, that was uh, the case. But it is politically sensitive, as you say. I mean, the likes of the DUP, let alone Theresa May's problems within her own party. Uh, Is it possible that a, a deal has been all but agreed uh, but it's a question of optics and the political optics will dictate how it's uh, unravelled Possibly but that's very worrying because what we need on paper is something that is beyond we, if you have a situation where hardline Brexiteers and Remainers for, um, uh, on, the, on the other side are both claiming victories as is essentially what happened last mm. December we know that that opens up a uh, potential for an unravelling of the the negotiation. So what we have to have is something that provides absolute clarity, that people can read it and understand what it means and know how it will be um, enforced. Because anything other than that just leaves us hostages to fortune and means that that no-deal, worst-case scenario that you've outlined Mm -hmm. will will potentially happen at some point down the line. But if there is a deal, everybody has to be a winner, don't they? Everybody has to save face, if nothing else. Yeah, possibly. But crucially, what's more important is the economic, the political, the social future of our country and our people. Remember, the people in the North voted to remain part of the European Union. Um, that deal um, or that decision on their part is not being respected. So mm. outside of that, they need to have assurances that they're not going to suffer for a decision that they had no hand like their part in. And that is why it has been, I suppose, mind-boggling to listen and hear and watch DUP spokespersons because what they're advocating will be against the best interests of the people who vote for them. As So DUP voters, DUP farmers, businesses, workers, they're all going to suffer as much 
as Sinn Féin voters and workers and mm. farmers okay. um, if you have a scenario that the DUP were to get its way because they have decided from the outset that they're going to put their own ideological position um, to the fore. And um, we'll see if it wins out done. because we're into the end game really uh, at this stage. I'm running over time here but uh, thank you indeed for your time and for joining us as always. Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin MEP, brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.